the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Now, when I first arrived in Chicago, I arrived around dinner time, so I went to my hotel, checked in, and the lift driver had recommended, well, I hadn't recommended, but he kind of pointed out I was on the edge of Chinatown, so where the Chinese restaurants were. So I went there for dinner, uh, which was very stressful, trying to choose somewhere to go for dinner. And then, uh, as I was uh, just kind of wandering around exploring, really, this woman came up to me, tearfully asking me if I had any money. She needed to catch the train. She didn't have any change to catch the train, and she needed to get to her friend's place to look after her children. I'd only just got off the plane, so I didn't have any small notes. I just had $20 notes. But I said I'd, I had some coinage left over from the last time I was in America, so I said I'd give her that. So I got out my wallet, which was buried in my bag, and was starting to pour the coins out, and she made a grab at my notes. Uh, and then put her hands behind her back, and then brought them back round and apologised. She said, I thought you had ones, but you have no ones. You've just got 20s. So I gave her my coins, and there were a few more notes floating around in the breeze, which I eventually tracked down. But um, I was never sure that I got all the money back. And because I wasn't entirely sure how much was in the wallet, because I hadn't put all my cash in there. I'd taken a great wad out and put it somewhere else and just taken some of it. And that kind of, kind of left a taste for the rest of my time, really. And it was like, I felt a little bit violated, a little annoyed, and my trust had been damaged. And I saw a lot of beggars while I was in America. Sadly, a lot of ex-vets who have come back from America's longest-running wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and um, the, they just fall through the cracks, some of them, and live on the streets. And, and as I didn't give them money, in part because my wallet was generally buried deep in my backpack, so I was going to take quite a while to get it out, and I didn't have notes sitting around in my pocket, which maybe I might have had. Uh, but also there was a part of me that kept thinking, how oh, that woman back in Chicago got your money. Um, that, that, was all my, that was all my begging money went to her, so none left for you. But as I thought that, stories like that which we heard today also played around in the background. So this is a hard story, and the meaning of it seems pretty clear. There should be a picture coming up any minute. There we go. Although a lot of people have tried to not make it about what it seems to be about, and to make it, for example, about heaven and hell. Uh, which is an interesting thing, given heaven and hell are not mentioned in the story. It's Abraham's bosom and Hades. So... Uh, so these are clearly, well, Abraham's bosom is a Jewish idea from that time. Luther spent a lot of time trying to work out uh, what exactly that was, whether it was heaven or something, somewhere you went before heaven. Uh, and Hades was just the Greek understanding where everyone went. Uh, and there were places of torment and there were places of great luxury and splendor in Hades. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a punishment place particularly, it was just... When you die, you go to Hades. I mean, it was the Greek influence that led, in part, to Jews even thinking about an afterlife and the notions of where you might go and, and what might happen. And so this isn't a story about heaven and hell. And 
It's also been used by others to try to pacify the poor and to say, well, when you, when you die, you'll get your reward and we'll have ours now. So thank you very much. Uh, so don't make any fuss, just put up with your lot and God will reward you later, which led Marx to describe religion as the opium of the people, which it was in many ways. <coughs> what we have today is part, part of a conversation, in fact, between Jesus and um, some Pharisees and lawyers about the nature of law. But it's also part of a series of teaching in Luke's Gospel where Jesus offers some significant advice to men of wealth and power. How to live the law and commandments. So things like they should not take the seat at VIP events. At, at events they should not take the best seats at feasts. They should take lower seats. They should invite the poor, the diseased, the marginalised to their lavish feasts rather than, than their elite friends and family and folks who can return the invitation. They should consider selling all their possession and redistributing the proceeds to the poor. They were commended for giving half their possessions to the poor and making restitution to those they defrauded. And then he shamed the rich who contribute gifts to the temple from their wealth, contrasting them to the poor widow who sacrificed too much while they gave relatively little. And he was inviting all his hearers, including us, to see the people around us from the logic of God, from the perspective of the law of, the law of Moses and the prophets. Especially while Jesus constantly was concerned with the poor, the sick and the marginalised. One of the commentators I read contrasted that with our politicians who tend to not speak about the poor, the sick and the marginalised at all but put all the emphasis on the middle class. So what does that look like today? Well, I want to tell three stories. At the meeting I was at in Long Island, um, I can't remember who it was, but one of the Franciscans there said he always carried $20 around in his pocket. And whenever somebody stopped him and asked him for money, he would give them $20 and he would engage them in conversation which seemed quite challenging to me given we've been told not to give money to beggars. So it was quite an interesting response. I wasn't quite sure what to do about that. Bishop David Rice, who was our bishop, is the Bishop Protector for the Americas, so he was at our meeting. And uh, he talked about his yellow bags. The diocese that he went to uh, was one of the dioceses which left the Episcopal Church with the ordination of Gene Robinson uh, who was a gay man with a partner. And the diocese he went to had been, uh, with a previous full-time bishop, uh, had thought the Episcopal Church was evil from the day of his ordination uh, and had banned any Episcopal Church publications from ever being in the diocese and from the diocese having much to do with the Episcopal Church at all. And so when he declared that he was leaving, a lot of people agreed with him and went with him. And so what was left was... Uh, the, the remnants, the, those who were Episcopalians and wanted to stay Episcopalian, but in many cases they had no priests, they had no property because the properties went with the, uh, the church, the diocese when it left. Uh, and so David's role there was to help them create a sense of what they're about in this new environment. 
So as he arrived, the court cases were slowly coming through the courts and one by one the properties were returned and the trust funds were returned uh, and then they sold the properties because uh, he said most of them were built in the 1960s with a uh, build it and they will come kind of mentality and so there were large places which were entirely unsuitable. They'd been pretty unsuitable for the previous regime and they were very unsuitable now. Well, they're trying to sell large churches. It's not the easiest of things to do, really. But one of, his, one of the things he did when he went around and visited clergy and lay leaders was to ask them, tell me about the, the, the street people, the people who are homeless and living on the streets. And he was surprised at the number of times that people said to him, oh, we don't have any of those here. Now, the problem for the rich man and, was that he couldn't see Lazarus. It wasn't that he didn't care, it's just that he didn't see this poor man at his gate. So, the only time he saw Lazarus was after he died. And, then he, and then even then, he only saw him because he thought he could do a job for him. He didn't actually have any compassion for him. And so, Lazarus was invisible. And Jesus' point is, when talking to the wealthy and the powerful that the poor, who made up about 90% of the population, were invisible to them, apart from they provided labour for their land. But apart from that, they were of no concern to them at all. And Jesus was trying to make them visible. And so uh, Bishop David was kind of surprised by that, and he found some money from somewhere on the Episcopal Church, and he bought a whole lot of yellow bags, and he went back to all those places, and he said, here's some yellow bags, I want you to fill it, with things that would be good for homeless people, and I want you to give it to them. But I don't want you, out of your middle-class affluence, to think that you know what a, middle, what a homeless person would want. I want you to go and talk to them. I want you to get to know them, get to know their needs, and ask them what would be useful in these yellow bags. So, well, a lot of people did that. They went and talked to the homeless people, and immediately that made those people visible. You actually had to see them before you could talk to them. And they weren't just a homeless person that you need to move out of the way of your shop front so that customers can get in, but they're people who have stories about how they get there and have uh, issues and needs. And so David now drives around with a few yellow bags in the back of his car and occasionally stops and goes and chats to people on the streets and gives them the yellow bag. I like that idea. And other dioceses around the, in the United States also like that idea and have picked it up. But I have to say at the same time it also terrifies me a little bit. Which brings me to the third story which is where our gates where are, where are our edges? What stops us doing things? One of the people that has come here regularly has been Jack or Wayne. And it's been at 8 o'clock a few times. I had to tell him to stop swearing in one service. Josie was here and she thought he was praying. Well, maybe he was. But, uh, and when he's good, he's been very good. So most of the time he's been fine. He's just come, had a cup of coffee or two or three and had some biscuits. And then um, when we kick him out, he's fine. Off he goes. Um, but when he's strung out, he can be quite abusive. And on Monday he was uh, 
abusive again, but this time he was directing it at Patricia. So she locked the door and called the police. So he's now trespassed from here. He can't come back. And Monday was a bad day. He was trespassed from four places around town, which I think brings the total up to 40, the police said. So there are decreasing numbers of places that he can go to. So one of our gates is our fear, and sometimes that fear is legitimate. Like he's a big man, and when he's strung out, you just don't know what he's going to do, whether he's going to get physical. I mean, I've never seen him be physical, but Patricia wasn't willing to take that risk. And I back her on that. That was the right decision to do. But that is one of our gates, keeping ourselves safe in all of this conversation as well, that there are people who do bad things. But the issue remains that this story is about us and, and who we see and who we don't see and how we engage with them. So here are a couple of questions for you to reflect on. What are the gates, and they're the same ones that are in the pew sheet, what are the gates that separate us from those in more need around us? And who is at our gate? And how are we seeing and responding to them? And the seeing is really important. Because often we see a homeless person. So all the stuff about the beggars last year and this bylaws, that wasn't about people, that was about beggars. So they weren't seen as people, they were seen as a category that we needed to deal with, rather than these are people with stories and needs and how do we address them. So you can sit and think about that for a moment. You can uh, turn and talk to your neighbour for a moment if you like, if you can find one. And, uh, and in a few, a minute or two we'll, we'll say some prayers about all these things. So before we do the prayers, I just wondered if there were any responses. I was looking at that first question and thinking that needed the more is extraneous. I needed to not have that in there. That's what happens when you're writing a thing in a hurry on Friday morning before Patricia needs to print the pew sheet. Rats. We were talking about fear. Yeah. Fear is a very strong emotion. Yeah. And it's They don't trust us. No. So there's a complete lack of trust in that. Mm. Yeah. And trust is a big thing. It is. David had this really nice story. Uh, he was driving to the 
son lives here in New Zealand and was back visiting and they were driving around and David stopped the car and said there's a yellow bag in the back and I'm take it over there and have a conversation with the guy. So he took it over and they had about a 10 minute conversation and he came back and he said, the guy thanked me, he didn't need it but he knew somebody that would need it so he was going to give it to him. Um, so I was, you know, the, with on the streets there is sometimes that trust but, but, but bridging that is hard work. It is hard work. John, I feel it's from Tarot that a lot of people are being helped and being responded to. There's lots of activities, lots of people with a yep. caring for these people. Yep. So um, if they genuinely think that there is help yep. eventually for them, why don't they know? No, I mean, so some of that is we don't need to be doing it, but some of it is how do we support them. So Peter was supposed to be at the 9.30 service talking about his work at Miraval, um, but he's been in hospital this week, so he's not going to be here. Uh, so we have, not Miraval, it's doing whanau, so we actually have Sophie from, who's the manager at Miraval Community Centre coming at the 9.30 service, to talk about what they are doing uh, and how we can support them. So we already do through Centrepoint, but you know, are there other ways we can support them in that work. So some of this is not about necessarily us doing things, but it is about how we see them and treat them. But it's also who is doing that work and how do we stand with them in that work and not just, oh, well, they're doing it, I don't need to worry about it. And sometimes that's just praying for them. So naming those groups and praying for them every day. Yeah. Well, on that note, a nice segue. Shall we do some praying? <laughs>